This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, and welcome to the Audio Book Club for April 2015. I'm Katie Waldman, Slate's Words Correspondent, and I'm here in the DC studio with Hannah Rosen, who wears a plethora of writing and editing hats here at Slate and around the world. Hi, Hannah. Around the world, I think, is exaggerating. <laughs> domestic. I thought you were going to say who wears and then tell us what Hannah's outfit is. At what I'm actually wearing. Oh, yes. yeah. I could, but maybe you want to remain shrouded in secrecy. Exactly, like okay. this novel. And whose dulcet tones you just heard from the New York studio, we have New York Times Magazine staff writer and political gabfest luminary and all-around awesome person, Emily Bazelon. Welcome, Emily. Thank you, Katie. You're such a, like, lovely, flattering host. (laughs) (laughs) I'm buttering you guys up now so that when we disagree vociferously about the book, um, we'll be like, wait, where did those knives come from? She seems so nice. Yeah, Emily's used to David, who's like, and there's Emily. Exactly. (laughs) Dun, dun, dun. Well, we are going to talk about Ali Smith's novel, How to Be Both Today. It was shortlisted for last year's Man Booker Prize. This double helix of a book twists together two narrative strands. The first belongs to a contemporary teenager named George, who has just lost her mother, and the second to an early Renaissance painter, Francesco del Casa, who is at once painting a fresco for the Duke of Ferrara, but also seems to have been conjured back from the dead to observe George and her grief. Structurally and on a language level, the book is incredibly inventive. For one thing, it exists in two versions. Some people get the section from the painter's perspective first and then George's section. Other people have that order reversed. I also found the writing to be exceedingly beautiful and lyrical, but not always easy to follow. And hopefully we can dig into all of that. But before we get too far, I do want to issue the usual ABC spoiler siren. We are going to lay bare details, plot twists, and things that you may not want to know about if you plan on reading How to Be Both later, which I hope you do. So please come back and listen afterwards if you care about spoilers. And for now, goodbye. (laughs) (laughs) And hello, Remnant. So now, let's yeah, launch. I actually have I have something I want to say before we launch, which is that the way I prepare for these book clubs is I, I read the novel. Sometimes I read it two or three times. I go over it, and then I read a review here and there. Mm-hmm. And I was reading the reviews last night of this book, and I have to say they were distinctly bad. And what I drew from that was not that you know book criticism has you know gone down in the toilet or any large theory about that. It was that this book is actually very difficult to pin down. It's very yes. difficult to talk about. There's a scene in which George, who is the young girl, is with her therapist, her school counselor named Mrs. Rock. And Mrs. Rock, in the one of the few times she talks rather than just trying to elicit George's talking, says something about mysteries. And she mm-hmm. said, oh, in this mm-hmm. world, we are used to mysteries that are solvable. When we hear the word mystery, we think of a mystery novel and we assume it has a solution at the end. But in fact, there are deeper mysteries. And I think there's so many points in this novel where Ali Smith is playing with us. So I just want to put that out there, not as an excuse, should we have an inconclusive <laughs> conversation, but you know, it's very hard to stick 
pick the landing in conversations and come to a kind of definitive conclusion about this book. It's extremely playful, extremely intellectual. It is largely deals with opposites and not and how they are not truly opposites. So so I'm just putting that out there. (laughs) I'm so glad you started us off there because my fear reading this book was that I was just confused about it in a dumb way and that I was going to have to try to fake some understand, like that I would have gotten something really basic wrong and you guys would be like, um... No. No. <laughs> no, she is a girl, Emily. No, it's exactly. the, it's yeah. I remember once being in college and sitting in a graduate seminar when I was an undergraduate and they talked about the term of opacity, opacity, and I was like this is such bullshit. Like opacity, we were talking about Dante. Opacity is just means you don't understand, you know? But it was in reading this book that I realized no, opacity is like an intentional technique sometimes and it can be playful as opposed to just kind of foreboding literary analysis or put a wall up. And in fact walls are a big metaphor in this book, mm-hmm. as is blindness. So opacity is a thing that you can play with and make softer, you know? Yeah. Right. And there are moments in this book that are Faulkner-esque in the sense that when you read them for the first time, it's very difficult to make sense of them. And then if you go back and read them again later after having finished it or finished one of the sections, then they mean something. Should we get out of the way which version of the book we had? Yeah, yes. let's do that. Because actually when you were saying that, Emily, I realized I feel very lucky that I got George's section first and then Francesco's. Because I think if it had been reversed for me, I would have been completely even more disoriented than I was. Because the painter's section seems to be sort of looser, wilder, more eccentric. And also more tying up threads that are introduced in George's section. I don't know if you guys felt that one perspective was more accessible than the other. I completely agree. And I had George first, too. What about you, Hannah? Oh, I have a theory that the other one doesn't exist. Really? I, yes. Oh. I have a theory that she the wrote. play on all of us. I have a theory that Allie Smith, it, well, two theories. One, that she might have written the other one first, and it mm-hmm. has an ending that feels like an ending. Yeah. But that either her editors were like, uh, no, or that it actually doesn't exist. Because I think the novel is extremely difficult to enter. It's hard enough to enter in George. I actually had to restart the novel three times. Yes, I the didn't... first few pages are very hard. <laughs> yeah. right? I know, Partly like... because George is a girl and her name is George, and that takes a while just to work out for it on its own. Yeah, and although to work out I that will she's say, not a too. sorry, I will say review copies had the reverse. Like the Times, re- a lot of the review copies said, oh, it starts with this painter, blah, 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 huh. and that's what really confused oh. me. So I might be wrong, or it might be that review copies were sent out, but no actual copies were sold. With that's the why George's. the reviews were so bad, Hannah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I think if I had started with the painter section, I would have been very frustrated. I agree. Okay, so we all, we can establish we all started with George, and that is a good thing. I do think maybe we should read that paragraph on the mystery, just because I had that marked too under my heading on my notes that says grand themes. So (laughs) I feel like that's important. Um, For me, it's on page 72. And um, Mrs. Rock, uh, before leaping into her discussion of mystery, says, look, I know that you're interested in the meanings of things, George, which is another theme, I think, you know, whether things are meaningful or just sort of strange coincidences. And she says... Anyway, the word mystery originally meant a closing of the mouth or the eyes. It meant an agreement or an understanding that something would not be disclosed. George got interested in spite of herself. The mysterious nature of some things was accepted then, much more taken for granted, Mrs. Rock said. But now we live in a time and in a culture when mystery tends to mean something more answerable. It means a crime novel, a thriller, a drama on TV, usually one where we'll probably find out, and where the whole point of reading it or watching it will be that we will find out what happened. And if we don't, we feel cheated. Well, closing and opening is mm-hmm. something that comes up a lot in this novel. And I think what Mrs. Rock is saying is that if the closing is a mystery that's solved and finished, you're finished with it. It's only an opening if you're not finished with it. So if you start mm. with George's section, the whole action is launched by the death of her mother. And she's kind of an insolent teenager before her mother died, you know, not in any kind of special way. She's just your typical mom kind of teenager insofar as you get the snippets of conversation. 
And yet it is her mother's death which makes her intensely interested in her mother Mm -hmm. and draw closer to her mother. And her mother's death is a mystery. Her mother doesn't die from any explicable reason. It's kind of a throwaway sentence in the book that her mother had an uncommon reaction to an antibiotic, which isn't explained. It's just a weird thing that happened. Her mother shouldn't be the one that died. She was full of vitality. George was kind of pushing her away. Her mother died. And now she's kind of obsessed with her mother, wants to know everything about her mother. So that is, you know, a place where a closing is an opening, which I think happens a lot in the book. Yeah. And actually, that's a fascinating point. The word mystery comes back on page 227 in Francesco's section. And actually, can we just dispense with this Francesco stuff? The painter is a girl. She is a woman. Yes. Um, And, you know, I figured that out and then forgot about it and had to, like, (laughs) relearn it, like, three or four times as I was reading. That's so funny because in my, like, being, she was a girl from the first sentence. Like, I just felt that the way she watched her mother. Like, it was something about the watchfulness she had of her mother, like, just the the Mm -hmm. kind of invisible string between them just felt so female to me that I Don't you think she also has the same voice as George? Yes. Which maybe is on purpose. That that was was also really bewildering to me. I wasn't sure whether they were supposed to be, like, the two women in the photograph, the blonde one and the dark-haired one who were sort of like sisters across time or whether they were actually supposed to be doppelgangers because their parents seemed they both had these sort of spiritually attuned mysterious mothers and these kind of distant, emotionally disconnected fathers. Yeah, there did seem to be a lot of similarities between them. But just really quickly, when Francesca or Francesco comes back, she says, well, I can't be in hell. I must be in purgatory because there's so much mystery in this world that I found myself. And in mystery, there is always hope. And so I think it has something to do with the groundwork of the novel is that we're going to keep things mysterious because by keeping them mysterious, they are open and full of possibility and there's hope. Where things aren't settled and closed, there's hope. Right. And then I think also that Ally Smith is doing a sort of wink to us in this line from Miss Rock that we think we'll find out. And if we don't, we'll feel cheated. Because Mm -hmm. if if you feel cheated by the inconclusive nature of this book and all the sort of swirling ambiguities of it, which we are not sure we can resolve, then you sort of miss the point because she doesn't want an open and shut, a solved mystery. She wants to leave you with uncertainty. Another big theme that comes up in this book a lot is the transformative nature of looking at something. Mm. So, for example, in this book, blindness is not the opposite of, like, really looking. They're both kind of active states of looking. Sex comes up. So when she's finding out about porn, that is George, the girl in our modern century, (laughs) is finding out about porn, she starts to watch porn videos. And she comes across, I don't really, like, if you just Googled porn, do you think you would come across such weird porn (laughs) videos? It's like one of them involves a blindfolded woman who's being sort of led into a room and something's being done to her. But there's, you know, one blindness metaphor. Like, clearly that blindness is charged with something. You know, she's blinded. So something, you know, there's a lot of energy behind that. The second one involves, I don't have any idea what this one is about, the girl who has sex with 40 men. And one of them is the father of the child. I don't understand that one. And then the third one is about this little girl. This one reminded me most of your story, Emily, in the New York Times Mm. magazine about the women who were suing to get paid for the child porn that had been distributed out in the world because it's they were trying to get restitution restitution from the man not like paid for the pornography because in that lawsuit is also this idea that seeing has consequences that like seeing causes actual pain upon them in George's case she's looking at these pictures thinking if I am a witness to this girl's pain then I'm kind of a bomb but actually and then her father comes in and says no you're just like adding more clicks honey so like I was thinking very much about that story you wrote about because we yeah. often think of that as passive, right? Like you're just looking at something and that's completely passive. But in this novel, looking at something is never passive. It always causes something else to happen or, you know, launches things. There's so much meaning and kind of wirism, spying, like the number of times yeah. like looking at something comes up as an act, you know? Right. right. And there's so many different, I mean, there's surveillance, which can be really ominous, like um, George's intuition that is maybe paranoid fantasy and maybe absolutely true and like the weird fantastic 
fantastic world of this novel that the government is spying on her mother because her mother is this subversive political artist in addition to being a well-regarded economic writer. So there's surveillance, which is dangerous, and then there's sort of like the loving uh, looking, there's sort of the watching that the spirit of the painter does to George as George is grappling with the loss of her mother and you have this sense of like a kindly universe casting its benevolent eye on this lost child and that's great. And Lisa Goliard, her mother's mm-hmm. lover or not lover, is spying on her. Basically, she says, do you think she's a spy? And she's always sort of, what was the word? I think, did she say spy? She's and, minotauring her. Minotauring. Right. And her mother, one of the things that is unexpectedly beautiful about this novel is her concise descriptions of what love feel like. Mm. And her mother, let me see if I can find this. It's when her mother talks about Lisa Goliard looking at her. Her mother's having basically an inappropriate, what I would describe as an inappropriate conversation with her teenage daughter. About this, her sort of flirtation. Yes, with about this woman. woman who's in love with her. And she says the kiss didn't really feel like a kiss. It didn't feel like what you want. Her mother's saying, I'm not gay, basically, but this mm-hmm. woman's in love with me. But she did describe how lovely it was to have someone look at you. It's a scene in which Lisa Goliard is watching her eat and mm-hmm. how transformative it is to have somebody watch you eat. Okay, I have it. It's on page 119 in my version. I wish there was like an audiobook club Facebook page where people could just tally which version of the book so I could answer my conspiracy about whether mm. everyone has the same version of the book. Well, I think let's put that question out to okay. our listeners. If anyone has the other version where Francesco's section comes first, we want to know about it. Were you frustrated and enraged and confused? Okay, starts on page 118. This is her mother talking about this woman who's obsessed with her. We went for lunch. We got quite drunk. She said, this is exciting for me because I get to watch you eat. And I said, what? Really? Something like that excites you? But all the same, how flattering. Someone wanted to watch me eat. Weird, George says. And then her mother like is kind of reliving this moment and says, I liked her more and more. She was repressed, respectable, anarchic, and rude and unexpected. So it's like you can almost feel that someone's real when they start watching you and then Mm. you see them. It's almost like a conversation that happens silently. And then the watching almost takes over the book in Francesco's section because, well, first the preview for that is George staring intensively for hours twice a week at a painting that Francesco made that is in, I think, the National Gallery in London. And then there is Francesco's intense descriptions of looking at everyone around him at prostitutes who he gets involved with at anyone who's painting and his descriptions of his I think most famous painting which is a frieze about the month of March or standing for the month of March in this larger work partly painted by other painters at the time too so I found myself then going online to look at these pictures and making that part of the experience of reading the book and thinking a lot Mm -hmm. about looking at images and then like the difference between looking at something on your computer screen versus seeing it in its original state. Did you guys, were you thinking about all of those things too? Yeah. And I think it's worth mentioning that Francesco Del Casa is a real artist. I actually have the Wikipedia page here. Not a girl though. As far as we know, he was a man and he lived in the 15th century early Renaissance Italian painter. In fact, did do these sort of mystical, magical, large murals, most famously an allegorical fresco in the Palazzo. I'm going to butcher this pronunciation, but it's translated in the novel as the palace of being not bored. Um, (laughs) Do you think Slate would pay for us to go see it? I mean, don't you think we should? Like, we should just go to Italy and go see it? It And isn't your favorite thing about George's mother that she just decided to take her kids out of school and go for this trip to Italy with them to just go see this painting because she saw it in a magazine and really loved it? You know, I love this conversation because I think this is the way you're supposed to talk about this book, which is very hard to do in a book review. It's very hard to do in print because (laughs) you have to be be linear in print. But actually, the way we're talking is actually the way the novel kind of surfaces its meaning. So it's actually easier to do this than it would be to write about it. I just wrote down the two words I wanted to write down were brothel and subvert that Ah. came up. Subvert being what her mother does. I wanted to talk about what her mother does in the context since you mentioned her mother, Emily, of all these themes we've been talking about. Her mother like is a subversive, she subverts art with politics and politics with art. She does a thing which I think sounds pretty technologically sophisticated, so it doesn't actually make sense that she would know how to do this. But she has appeared, it seems pretty sophisticated hackery, right? Like to have appear on somebody's computer or some advertisement, a statement which subverts 
the thing you're looking at. It's almost like making you consciously consider if you're looking at a dumb commercial about a banana, which George later brings up, you can't kind of dumbly sit there and have your mind penetrated by this dumb advert about a banana because her mother's thing will pop up and sort of force you to be politically conscious. Is that a fair way of describing what her, the yes, subvert? Yes, and what I thought was genius about it as an idea, both the word subvert and as an idea um, of a kind of hacking is that this happens all the time accidentally, right? I mean, I'll write a story and the art for it will be up against an ad online in a way that's very unfortunate, (laughs) unintentional. But, you know, like you'll be showing some like bedraggled female prisoner and it'll be up against some chic model. And so the notion that you could, as a kind of act of subversion and political activism, make that happen on purpose is just awesome. Yeah, it's like Google ads subverting, like you type the word lederhosen and suddenly you get 25 ads for lederhosen for the rest of your life. You ask, why would I type the word lederhosen? Because you're making a lederhosen joke, obviously. But you know what I mean, like how the Google ads pop up. <laughs> yes, and then you totally. To... So it's impossible that she actually would have been able to do that in her own living. There's no suggestion that she's like technologically proficient or anything, but yet that's just like one of those things you accept as a premise of the novel. Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting because there are these kind of realist characters characters. Like I consider George to be a person ensconced in the real world with real, you know, romantic feelings towards this other student H who we should also talk about. And then there's kind of the fantastic elements, which includes like the resuscitated spirit of Francesco. But there are sort of these marginal figures too. And I think the mothers are really in this category who seem sort of like the way that they ask these kind of eternal moral questions and sort of have these transformative conversations with their offspring. Like I think Francesco's mother talks to her about a ring of water or like a ring of horse piss maybe. A seed drops in this puddle of some liquid and spreads out a ring and she has this very beautiful philosophical explanation of the circle expanding and kind of encompassing the entire world. And I think that's also sort of a theory of time in this book is that it's not linear, that it's a circle, not a flat circle, no uh, true detective stuff Yeah, curves are beautiful. She even talks about painting. I love that scene. I actually, it is, you know how boyhood, like the whole, premise of boyhood is that childhood is remembered not in like my birthday, my graduation, but actually moments. Mm-hmm. Um, I had one of the most vivid memories of my childhood, and please don't laugh at me. It's very much like that moment George had. I got out of a car going to my parents' friend's house, and my stockings ripped, and I could not find the missing piece. Mm. And I was obsessed with this <laughs> missing piece. And it, and my dad behaved very much like Francesco, whose name wasn't Francesco when she was born, but her mom, which is he didn't say, you moron, there is no missing piece. He kind of looked around for the missing mm. piece with me. And then he just said, oh, you know, it's somewhere. He just gave it a kind of spirit feeling. I don't remember exactly what he said, but there are these ways in which these like little confusions can, can kind of profoundly make their way into a kid and then sort of come out as this beautiful godlike metaphor, basically, which is what happens in this moment. He tapped into the power of mystery. Right. And you, t- and exactly. That's exactly what he did. He was just And like, allowed you to imagine this piece of stocking floating off somewhere having another life. Right. right. And I think that's a big theme here, too, is the link between mystery and creativity. Like the idea, as you've already said, of keeping things up in the air unsettled, that sort of arena of possibility and space is really linked to like the creative impulse and the artistic inspiration of Francesco. I'm going to bring us down to earth slightly to ask you a question. Mm -hmm. So the first half of the book is, if not primarily, significantly preoccupied with George's grief over her mother's death and the looking at the pornography you described, Hannah, the looking at the paintings, the eventually George starts doing surveillance of her own about Lisa Galliard, the mysterious other woman. All of those are kind of, I think, tactics ways in which she's acting out this morning of her mother. The second half of the book is much more fanciful. Francesca does sort of, at least in the framing of that section, get zapped somehow into George's world and is watching her. But it's not a section about mourning. Do these two sections of the book actually go together? You know, I thought about that a lot. I saw in the reviews, and you could feel people's frustration, I wish this whole book had been about George, that I just wish it had been about a girl mourning her mother because that's so much easier to read. But I understand why that is counter to Ali Smith's way of 
being. That is too easy for her. First of all, I think the one accessible thing that it's about is gender Mm -hmm. and growing up, you know, as a girl in a place where girls have limited opportunities. You know, her life was sort of like you read, there was that front page New York Times story about those girls in Afghanistan who are (laughs) live as boys because that allows them to live in the world. So their parents decide at some young age, you're going to be a boy. And there's a lot of like drama in that, you know, the drama that leads to like a weird Sheryl Sandberg lean in moment, which is important, which I totally don't understand. I was like, what is that doing there? The one piece that sticks out is the justice theme. Like I had no idea what to do with that notion of like fair compensation and Well let's explain before in case so in case people don't know what we're talking about. It's actually the opening question raised in the book. Yeah. Yeah. Which was part of my own confusion. But to explain as much as I understand, the mother poses this question to George about Francesco, this idea that at that time he she asked the patron of the art he or she was working on for more money. And so the mother poses this as a conundrum. You're an artist, she says. You're working on a project with a lot of other artists. Everybody is getting the same amount salary-wise. But you believe that what you're doing is worth more than everyone on the project, including you, is getting paid. So you write a letter to the man who's commissioned the work, and you ask him to give you more money than everyone else is getting. And that's like the mother's opening bid as they're driving in Italy to go look at this freeze, right? Yeah, I only have one theory, which is not very good. Okay, here's my only theory. So the mother represents a radical subversive who believes in the purity of art and, you know, who would be the kind of person if you met her in life would be constantly criticizing you for selling out. Like, Mm. you're selling out, you're selling out, you're selling out. So that's the pat kind of (laughs) character (laughs) description of the mother. But then she tells this story, the clear point of which is that if Francesco had never written this letter, had never done such a small thing as ask for more money, such a mundane kind of dirty act of commercialism, then she would not have been known. Her identity wouldn't have been known. We wouldn't have known she had existed. We wouldn't have known that the frieze was like, you know, covered up by some other frieze and paint like so that that's actually a part that you can't dismiss. That's all I got. So what's interesting about that is Ali Smith wrote this wonderful essay for The Guardian about her discovery of Francesco's work and this particular freeze in which she talks about this letter. It's a real letter. But what struck her and made her, I imagine, want to write the book or at least this section was the art itself. I mean, in the end, the art has to stand for itself, right? And the letter has to be a footnote. So... Right. So that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, okay, here's what I have. And this is a terrible theory. First of all, there was a really unsatisfying riff, I thought, somewhere in the book. I can't remember exactly what page, but where Ali Smith is talking about the verb make, you know, how much should she make and how is that related to what she makes as an artist? So what's the relationship between money and art? And I thought maybe there was some deeper philosophy there that I just couldn't unpack. But I do think that the notion of being compensated fairly has to do with the gender politics of the book. And so it's back to that question of justice, which is strange because I think when you get into the realm of justice and fairness, that is about settling things and pinning them down into every person is given his or her due, which seems totally contrary to the spirit of the book, which is like, keep everything flowing and fluid and up in the air. I guess one possible thing you could say is that the Minotaur, who is kind of this mythic motif that keeps coming back, he's on Crete, right? Mm -hmm. And Crete is presided over by Minos, who is the great Greek figure of justice. And so maybe there is some implication with that that justice is more complicated and labyrinthine and um, convoluted than we'd expect. Well, maybe we should talk about the gender politics of the book because that is one place which took me out of the Ali Smith spirit a little bit. So what you're saying actually makes some sense to me because I did feel it was at slight odds with the playful and, you know, kind of mysteries upon mysteries way that the book was operating. The way gender works in this book is, you know, opposites are not opposites. There's sentences in there like she was a boy or she was a girl. There's a lot of like you don't know if George is a boy or a girl. Uh, Francesco lives as a boy even though she's a girl. She is George gay. has the name George and <laughs> right. is a girl. But George is gay as Ali Smith is gay. And mm-hmm. so it felt a little kind of ruby fruit jungle, modern politics, gender fluid, a little too familiar. 
And a little too on the nose, right? Like, it's not as subtle as of what we're all, I think, enjoying about this book. Right. And I think there are actually several instances where George's mother says, like, would it matter if this Moorish figure who's in the freeze was a man or a woman? And you're kind of like, okay, we get it. You don't need to actually. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Every single person's gender identity is fluid in this mm-hmm. book, except maybe the dads. Can we talk about the brothel a little bit. I love that yes. scene. I found that so interesting. It relates to the gender. So I thought yes. the brothel nicely tied up a lot of, this is in the the Francesco part of the book. Francesco goes to a brothel. Uh, she, or he, she. She, let's go okay. with she. Let's go with she, she who's living in a sea. Okay, she, her father has instructed her basically, you have to make friends with the rich people, you know, the patrons who will, and that's that's your road to success. But she's had actually a genuine friendship with a patron and there is an understanding between them that she's a boy. That's kind of the basis of their friendship. And one of my favorite parts was when their friendship falls apart for a moment and I'll read that in a minute. But she goes into the brothel and the idea is like, I'm going to show you how it's done. Like her yeah. patron is basically buying her a prostitute. And she goes in there, but she doesn't want to have sex with any of the girls. She wants to draw them. And so she sits and she draws a picture of the girls and a few things happen. One is that the girls become completely transformed in ways initially good and then tragic by her paintings of them. That's very interesting. And two is that uh, is that what is two? Well, two is that, I mean, she becomes the most popular customer in the right. brothel and then is actually having sex with yes. at least one of the in girls. In a really sexy passage, I yes. gotta say. 272, can I just read this? Of because, course. wow. What's got into you, my father said, because all I could think of all that week was flowers for breath and flowers for eyes and mouths full of flowers, armpits of them, the backs of knees, laps, groins, overflowing with flowers, and all I could draw was leaves and flowers, the whirls of the roses, the foliage dark. And I just, I want to take a moment to say the lyricism and the beauty of this writing just pulled me in. Even when I didn't really know it was happening, it was just this kind of like right. rhythmic momentum that I found incredibly appealing. I wonder if you guys felt that way, especially in the Francesco section. I like the foliage dark. Mm. It's funny, her her playfulness with language is sometimes really interesting and sometimes you feel like she's showing off a little bit and okay. sometimes you feel like <laughs> she's indulging. And, you know, there's all like the way you can move words around on a page, particularly in the Francesco section, sometimes is off-putting and sometimes it's just so fun and delightful. Um, and that was a case where it's fun and delightful, maybe because it's about sex and because it's in a passage that, you know, we know what's happening, basically, mm. as opposed to, you know, towards the end of the Francesco section, I really don't know what's going on. I think she's dying or, yeah. you know, She's very ill, but... Somebody's dying. Somebody's dying. <laughs> yeah. like, language is getting all mixed up in there, but I can't, you know... I think my margin notes were like, question mark, uh-oh, question mark. <laughs> well, I, you know, it, it brought, it made me feel like, okay, I have to understand. It's like you feel when you read the Ulysses. It's like, I can do this, but I can't do it alone. Like, I need Right, I well, need and with help. Ulysses, you have the annotated version, which is how I read that book. And, like, I enjoyed it because of that. And with this, I did feel like I could have used a few notes, particularly in that confusing Well, it's like section. that Elliot quote that's like, you understand it before you understand it. So I think, like, in ways that are not intellectual, you are absorbing the meaning of it, but you sort of have to let go of that wish that she would commit to like one meaning that you could just apprehend. Right. And I think there's a reason she saved that level of intellectual playfulness or confusion for the end, Mm -hmm. because it really is toward the end. You're not going to stop reading at that point. And even though I don't think I ever really made sense of literally of all of those passages, then I went back and reread the beginning, both of the book and of the Francesco section, and I understood them much better having read the end. Yeah, and also by then you you have sunk into the themes of the book and the way the language moves, and so you're much more accepting of what she's trying to do than you are at the beginning. I think, though... Just as a plea for, uh, or a note of slight frustration, what I felt like I lost toward the end was the relationship. So clearly Francesco's relationship with her pickpocket assistant is important. 
and is unfolding and their roles are shifting in that last section. But I had lost like hold of what I was supposed to be paying attention to, why he mattered so much in a way that I felt like was actually more obfuscating than was helpful. We're having trouble with the money themes. The pickpot was a complete mystery to me. I didn't understand. I mean, clearly he's mythological. I mean, he's allegorical rather because he's called the pickpocket, right? He doesn't have a name necessarily. No, he does. It's like Escar or something. Oh, he does. Right. But I know why you say that he doesn't have a name because it seems like for a long time he doesn't have a name. Like Bartow is her actual friend. Things happen with Bartow. Bartow feels like a person. Yes. And, and the pickpocket feels like an allegory. And I guess well, he and is. Also, because... Right. He sort of is, but he's also real. It seems like maybe he takes over and takes her art business away from her, sort of succeeds her toward the end. But also all of the Francesco characters appear in this freeze that she's creating. So they also have all of that meaning too that they're like literally translated into images but isn't it allegorical like doesn't this bring us back to that lean in letter we were confused about which is <laughs> the pickpocket becomes the spirit that carries her from one world to the modern world like it's because of whoever is the person trying to steal money out of her hands the pickpocket the person mm. who's stealing money away from her it's the act of stealing money away from her which causes her to have but why do you feel like you understand yeah why? because the letter because the letter was found and then the freeze was discovered i mean just to, like in a literal historical discovery way somebody found the letter and was like oh wait there's a freeze under here and then they moved away the painting in the way that people discover freezes so it's that act of having money stolen away which actually made the art available and visible those 600 years later. Yeah, which would explain why he's like this impish, mischievous spirit that's on her side somehow. Because like, he's not the, you know, the Duke says, I am so just like, don't even put the figure of justice in my room where I dispense my verdicts because I am justice. Like, there doesn't need to be another representation. But then this like, seemingly outside the law pickpocket is sort of more aligned with the painter. So all of this actually just makes me think that the themes of this novel are not clear, that it is a little bit confused, and maybe she's sort of copped out by saying, oh, that's the way it's supposed to be. That's my point. I don't know. Like, Are you guys convinced by her argument that like being both is the better way to be? I mean, I like to live in that space. It's like mm-hmm. that Jungian space where if you've decided that two things are opposites, you know you're going down the wrong path. Like, I like to think about that. Like, I like to think, oh, gender is not – with gender, it doesn't work quite as well for me. But you can get into that mode where you think there are not two opposites, boy and girl. There is not blindness in seeing. There and not as journalists, of... we love this, right? Because mm-hmm. it's the ambiguous space in between the – that's like – the space we like to live in between black and white, I think. Yeah, and she does make it less painful than it usually is. Usually that's a really uncomfortable place to be, but she makes it playful. But, you know, yes, does my mind gravitate towards my, you know, my college senior opacity is bullshit place? (laughs) Sometimes. (laughs) Sometimes Well, I think the other thing that I struggled with is that what you're spinning out right now is so nuanced and... And lovely, but it kind of collides with the more heavy-handed thematic moments in the book. We've already talked about some of them, but in particular, the surveillance theme for me, like the idea Mm. that her mother was being spied on by the government in some real way. I mean, I guess I was like, I was like, is Allie Smith trying to make an Edward Snowden point here? Is that what this is about? Like the modern, you know, I didn't think so. I just that. Okay, good. I thought she was just like like that. I actually thought she was like sort of lightly referencing the ways we think about technology, like like without saying the words Google ad or Edward Snowden, like or clicks like. That modern lingo kind of hung in the air over all these incidents while the language was quite lyrical and old-fashioned. But those are themes that we now – I mean, part of having a book that's in the 15th century and in the modern era is to make you see that, you know, themes repeat and themes are similar and people talked about seeing then and people talk about seeing now that these things that we think of as so distinct to the technological modern era – actually can be carried back to the 15th century. And I think if she had talked about Google, blah, blah, it just would have kind of been – it's too much of a disjuncture in the language. What did you think about the idea that George was sitting on Lisa Galliard's wall watching her every day as like, I don't know, a form of revenge for Lisa having spied on her mother, a way of grappling with her mother's death, a way of creating art because 
Then in the Francesco section, we learn that George has created this like amazing work of art based on all the pictures she's taken while she's sitting on the wall. If this was Ali Smith's intent, I don't think she succeeded in ever bringing a negative valence to the act of watching. I think even, you know, the most problematic instances of watching, which is maybe the witnessing of the porn, like we have that already sort of rehabilitated by George's desire to like make it right by watching in the correct frame of mind. And I think like all of the instances of watching that we see, even Lisa Goliard, like she is a woman who clearly loves George's mom and is watching out of love. You have all kinds of images of the stars as these eyes looking down on various characters. And at one point, George wants the roof to cave in so that the eyes can cast themselves so that she can see the stars and the stars can see her. And it's this very lovely moment of like cosmic communion. But isn't it both discomforting and creepy? I mean, discomforting right. and comforting. Right, I got a little bit like, of creepy, Katie. I didn't get total benevolence. From I got all the both. Like, huh. Yeah, it's just me both. Too. There are layers and layers upon of seeing and watching, and you know that's sort of a god metaphor because there's this Jesus who's old. I mean, you know, religion is kind of lightly in this novel because you know there are freezes in their 15th century. But yes, that watching. I mean, if you think of the Bible, it is that way, right? Like God is simultaneously benevolent, watching over over in a way that is, you know, sometimes completely benevolent and sometimes terrifying. But there's so much watching and so little judging. Like the entire point of the book is like, we will not come to a conclusion. And so like, in the midst of all that watching and none of that judging, it just felt so fangless, you know, like all the watching felt so free of consequence. Judging. Now, let me think about that. Like, is there hmm. judgment? I mean, there's this justice question, but... But there's an, a sense of discomfort that George has about her mother's relationship with Lisa. And I also felt unsure and uncomfortable about whether her mother was deluding herself that Lisa was spying on her in an act of working for the government because her, you know, hackery subvert campaign actually mattered. That sort of gets raised and dismissed in a way that made me feel a little sorry for the mother as like an underappreciated, you know female um, activist. But even that's an old theme. That's this the spy who loved me. Like that comes up yeah. in spy novels all the time is like, you know, there's the spy who's supposed to be keeping an eye on you and then but the relationship becomes genuine. So then what do we make of that? It's just the spy who loved me. <laughs> like it's both <laughs> like everything else in this novel. It's like both, both, I guess. Well I guess there is the critical gaze that Francesco paints into her mural, right? When she Those is eyes. Yeah, yeah. She so she makes a self portrait and she or I guess like more like a great Gatsby TJ Eckelberg portrait, but she paints her disembodied eyes into the scene where this obnoxious duke is handing out his verdicts, which are supposed to be so just and perfect, as if to say, Hey, I've got your number, I see the way you really are, and I also see that you're stiffing me on my compensation. So I guess that's one instance of judgment, but can I tell you, I'm sorry, I can't resist a historical fact from Ali Smith's essay about her discovery of these paintings. So, in fact, it seems like in the real world, the friezes were uncovered 400 years later after having been covered, but not because of the letter. They were uncovered because whitewash fell off the walls and people looked through the cracks and they saw little bits of face and they took the whitewash down. But then they attributed Francesco's section of the painting to the most famous Renaissance painter in Ferrara, Cosimo Tura. So what we got from the discovery of the letter, historically speaking, was Francesco's identity. That's how people knew that that part of the work was his. Right. Hmm. So Francesco was invisible. Right. It's just a slight turn from, I think, the way we all understood the historical facts from the novel. And um, I kind of like that there's a disjuncture there and doesn't all line up because you can see Ali Smith's imagination at play with those facts. But that's also very interesting because then it opens the door for her to write something that's deeply intimate because it's mm. it's not about, you know, the longevity of the painting or art history or anything like that. It's about restoring the identity of the particular person who did it. It's about giving credit to the correct person 
and it's not about you know having the the, the painting is there regardless. The the freeze is there whether the person is recognized or not. Exactly, it's the unearthing of her of his person. And then I love this line in Smith's essay. It's apparently the first recorded incident of an artist asking to be paid his proper worth or declaring a kind of economic vanity, depending on which way you look at it. There so again, go. how to be both. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> how to have both. I mean, did it matter to you guys that this was a real painter, like a historical figure? Yes, it mattered to me a lot because I got immersed in trying to look at his work online and think about how that interacted with the experiences of reading the book and reading mm-hmm. about George looking at the work and Francesco creating the work. I also think it's important when reading Ali Smith's to have a little grounding. Like the fact that it was grounded in something real kind of helps you deal with her flights of fancy yeah. a little bit better. So you don't feel like that in order to enjoy this book, you have to fully enter the fanciful imagination of Ali Smith and sort of crawl up in her head. Like, it actually has reference points to the actual world we live in. Yeah, and at the same time, I think it makes her seem even more intensely imaginative because we have, basically, we have, like, this scarecrow that all we know is, like, oh, a man who did a painting, and now she, like, takes that one fact and turns it on its head. Right. Right, and the other thing is some of the images, when you go and look at them, are really striking and seem to me, I mean, I'm no expert on Renaissance painting or friezes, but they seem to me quite original and different thematically in terms of the way the figures are depicted, who they are. In particular, there's this man in tattered fancy clothing who Smith got very taken with. And in her essay, there's a big image of that. And I thought, oh, that is a really interesting image from that period. I like, huh, I don't know if I've ever seen anything like that. Yeah. I mean, she does. This is an experience George in the early novel talks about, but how you can walk right by a painting or see a painting. Like the painting is Mm -hmm. there. And, you know, if you make the conscious decision to actually sit and stare, then you will notice all kinds of weird things happening there in the (laughs) background. But you could also just like walk on by because it's there with lots of other paintings in the gallery. I actually did for a moment when I when I put down the book yesterday, say to my children, okay, we're going to Italy. (laughs) I had that. I am going to be George's mom right now. Well, so did you buy your tickets? No. (laughs) Do you guys have any thoughts on H or Helena Fisker? Who is George's George's, yes. George's sort of savior friend in Mm -hmm. a moment where she really needs a friend. Who sort of brings her back down to earth, like out of grief land a little bit. But is also like the ideal lesbian teenager Mm -hmm. to have a crush on you, right? Right. (laughs) I mean, the incident which brings them together has a lot of the themes we've already discussed in a very modern incarnation, which is that the mean girls in Georgia school like to... I've never heard of this. Emily, in your, in, in your many, like, forays into the bullying world, do people record each other pissing and then, like, play that? Like, I don't really get the excitement except that it's just deeply humiliating. And also, like, it's very hard to it, – it seems just, like, wickedly hard to prevent that from happening because you would just, like, dumbly walk into a stall and pee. How would you ever know that the person next to you was recording you peeing? Right. I had the feeling that, like, someone told the story to Ali Smith. It probably has happened somewhere. But no, I don't think it's a thing, although maybe it will become one. (laughs) She was like an improbable lesbian fantasy to me, like just the kind of, you know, this totally strong. I mean, she just kind of came and went and she saved everybody and she made George's life seem kind of not that dangerous because otherwise George would have been just kind of bullied mourning, (laughs) you know, taking care of her brother, had a drunk father. Like her life would have been a little unbearable if she did not have this mythical uh, age. Yeah, right. Like I didn't know if she was real. I thought that she might be another emissary from the spirit world or like some mother remnant. I don't know. She even had a French French mother. Right. She moves away in the George section, but then in the Francesco section when Francesco seems to be watching George, Helena's back in this very comforting sweet way and they have what really seems like a dream scene of wrapping Mm -hmm. themselves in this work of art that George has created. And she sends her song lyrics in Latin. (laughs) Swoon. Right. Right, It was like... You didn't believe that teenagers would translate songs into Latin. (laughs) Well, that was the other thing. These kids are so smart. It was kind of intimidating. Just And even the wordplay between Henry, who's George's little brother, and George, it was kind of... Crazy. Like, I was thinking, are they going to grow up and be the Scrabble champions of the world? (laughs) It did. It made you, like, it made me embarrassed for any text flirting I've ever attempted (laughs) to do. Like, well, my text flirting is just in English. But didn't you also feel a little bit like, okay, these are not 
the voices or the activities of real teenagers and certainly not a kid Henry's age. And there's an alighting going on here of what kind of thoughts and actions an actual 16-year-old or a younger person would. I, I was a little bit like... Hmm. But why have this sort of pissing videos on the one hand and these kind of lyrical, fanciful, fairy tale children on the other hand? Like, And, well, and sort of put them I in think... the same world, you know? Right. Well, this is another way in which the duality of the novel is either wonderfully freeing or a crutch because it allows you to not have a character who has one identity that's actually fully developed because she slides among these mm. different, right? I mean, right. maybe Ellie Smith would argue that that's actually true about real people, that they have different facets and they do text in Latin, but then also get, you know, caught on someone's iPhone peeing in the bathroom stall at school. Yeah. Yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like we may have reached a stopping point. Yes, um, maybe. An aporia, maybe, because I still don't think that we have come to a grand unifying theory of how to be both, which is probably exactly what Ali Smith wants from Right, us. and we have no clear ending of the book to discuss, both because we don't know what sections the order necessarily always appears in, and also because there's literally no period at the end <laughs> of either section. True, it could just be spooling on and on. Well, we can read the end just to, so so we'll, we'll, we'll at least end with the end, okay? I'm looking for the last words of the first section. I think they're like around 160-something. So both of them end inconclusively. Now that I'm looking at one ending and comparing it to the other, one of them ends, the George section, the contemporary section ends with, it's definitely something to do for the foreseeable. Now that's a really awesome ending because mm -hmm. foreseeable, it's like a lot of the seeing and the blindness that we've been talking about. Also, there's a ghost word there, which is future, but it also sounds sort of weird, like cool teenage, like for the foreseeable, you know, but not right. actually but cool. But also yeah. right? slightly like the rhythm of it is satisfying too, right? It's yeah. Kind of cadence. And then the other one ends to be made and unmade both, you know, and it has no period, like you said, Emily. And it's, you know, again, it's a lot of the themes we've been talking about, the made, the unmade, the opposites. So I don't know. I think she gets away with it. Yeah. So, I um, mean... Oh, go ahead, Emily. Well, I was just going to ask you if you guys would recommend this book and what would you say as you recommended it? I would totally recommend it. Like, I was engrossed the entire way. I really enjoyed reading it. Like, I wasn't turned off. Like, it didn't feel gimmicky to me, even though now discussing it with you guys, it does. There are points where I would say, wow, that was a little bit indulgent, maybe. But I was with her the whole way. Oh, I felt bad that we made you think it was gimmicky. <laughs> no, but you just like you see the it's architecture. Both. It's both. <laughs> right, right. I think I would recommend it, Emily, to certain people, like not to everyone, like someone with a little bit of literary tolerance. I think certain mm. people might find it sort of twee and, you know, better people wouldn't find it twee. I agree. It's probably not for everyone, but I also would recommend reading it kind of Whenever you felt like you needed the company of the real pictures online or Ally Smith's essay about them, to me, reading them together enriched the experience of reading the novel. Actually, one last note on kind of the sensibility or the tone. George talks about the paintings, or I think George's mother says that they are this sort of flip flopping, switching mix of generous and sardonic. And I think actually Ali Smith really pulls that off, like a mix of generosity and sort of sly wit. And for whatever faults the book has, I think that's a really appealing combination and she makes it work. So Also the intellectualism and the intimacy I really mm -hmm. liked. Like I thought that yes. it, it feels very good to be in her novel. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, guys. Thank you. A program note. Our next audiobook club selection for May is H's for Hawk. The homepage for the Slate book review is slate.com slash books. You'll find the show pages for this and every episode of the audiobook club at slate.com slash ABC. Visit our Facebook page where you can leave a comment on this episode. That address is facebook.com slash slate ABC. Please subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, which helps other people discover the show. Search for Slate Audio Book Club in the iTunes store, and don't forget to leave a comment while you're there. Our producer is Abdul Rufus. The managing producer of Slate Podcasts is Joel Meyer, and the executive producer is Andy Bowers. This podcast is part of the Slate Panoply Network. For Hannah Rosen and Emily Bazelon, I'm Katie Waldman. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.